add secure hook 10 peg. May your unfailing love come to me, O salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law, forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes for kings, and I will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift, them, I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. I meditate on your decrees. Marvelous words. Wonderful stuff. What is it today? The 20th today? Yes. Okay, let me read this. And put that there. Let's see here. September 20th. One of life's saddest experiences is to lose a child in death. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, married Katharina von Bora, former nun, in 1525. Luther and Caddy, as he called her, had six children, Hans, Elizabeth, Magdalena, Martin, Paul, and Margarita. In 1542, when Hans was 16, the Luther sent him to Togau, Torgau to school because Wittenberg did not have an appropriate school for his education. Scarcely had he arrived there than his 13-year-old sister Magdalena became deathly ill. Martin Luther wrote to Hans's teacher, my dear Magdalena is nearing her end and will soon go to her true father in heaven unless he sees fit to spare her. She longed so much to see her brother for they were very close, so I am sending a carriage for him in the hope that a sight of him will revive her. I'm doing all I can lest afterwards the thought of having neglected anything should torment me. Please ask him to come at once without telling him why. I shall send him back as soon as she has either fallen asleep in the Lord or been restored to health. Farewell in the Lord. Hans returned home, but Magdalena's health continued to deteriorate. Luther prayed, O oh God, I love her dearly, but thy will be done. Then he asked her, Magdalena, my little girl, would you like to stay with your father here? And, um, yeah, and would you just as gladly go to your father in heaven? She answered, yes, dearest father, as God wills. In grief, it grieved Luther that in spite of all the blessings he had received from God, he had found himself unable in this situation to give thanks. On September 20th, 1542, as Magdalena's death drew near, Luther knelt at her bedside, praying through his tears that God would receive his little one. Katie stood at the end of the room, unable to watch as Magdalena died in her father's arms. Turning to her grieving wife, his grieving wife, Luther said with compassion, Dearest Katie, let us think of the home our daughter has gone to. There she is happy and at peace. As Magdalena was laid in her coffin, Luther remarked, my darling, you will rise and shine like the stars and the sun. Then he said to Katie, how strange to know that she is at peace and all is well and yet to be so sorrowful. To his friends who came to mourn with him, he said, let us not be sad. I have sent a saint to heaven. If mine could be like hers, I would gladly welcome death at this very hour. Luther wrote the epitaph for her grave. Here I, Magdalena, Dr. Luther's little maid, resting with the saints, sleep in my narrow bed. I was a child of death, for I was born in sin, but now I live, redeemed by, redeemed Lord Christ, by the blood you shed for me. Three days after her death, Luther wrote a letter to his friend, Justice Jonas. I expect you have heard that my beloved Magdalena has been born again into Christ's everlasting kingdom. 
although my wife and I ought to rejoice because of her happy end, yet such is the strength of natural affection that we cannot think of it without sobs and groans, which tear the heart apart. The memory of her face, her words, her expression in life and in death, everything about our most obedient, loving daughter lingers in our hearts so that even the death of Christ, and what are all deaths compared to his, is almost powerless to lift our minds above our loss. So would you give thanks to God in our stead? For he ha hasn't he honored us greatly in glorifying our child? The death of a loved one brings sorrow to everyone. It is important not to deny these feelings. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. God intends that we mourn. And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen so that you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Well, what a way to start a class. I know. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the experiences we go through, even death, which shows us that uh, we should cherish life all the more. And your word does say that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And that may seem contradictory until we go to the house of mourning and we contemplate our own end. Then we decide to live our lives more fully for you. Help us to have that perspective now after reading about this rather than experiencing it in person. And Lord, we ask that you bless this time together. We ask that what we say in this class will be glorifying of you and that it will not depart from your word. And uh, should I be wrong in any of my analysis, I would ask that these people would not be led astray by me, but would be enlightened to a proper analysis of what is being presented in your word by somebody else. And Lord, thank you. Thank you again for the chance to be here in this class with these wonderful, beautiful people. We praise you and we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was nice to hear that Luther's wife uh, kicked the habit. Kicked the oh yeah she was <laughs> kicked the habit very good that was that was well done oh, kicked the habit to get there. yeah she was a nun she kicked the habit Why that was huh because I feel really sick today I'm miserable so it says drippy nose for those that can't see I uh, we may make this just one hour and bail out of here I am just not feeling well but we'll see um, can we help you ma'am apparently we can't. We're in Romans chapter 15. We're in verse 5. Okay, here we go. Verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ. Okay, that's a little different than this one. I mean, it says the same basic thing. You know what? It's not because I skipped over line. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go Read 5 again. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ. Okay, it's still a bit different. This one says, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. So there you go. There is a bit of a difference. And uh, they say Jesus Christ. This one says Christ Jesus. And well, the book actually says Oh, okay. He changed. Okay, good. Um, that's okay. I'm dyslexic. I read things backwards all the time. I do it all the time. Before we start analyzing this verse, there's bread and stuff back there. If anybody wants to grab it, it's freebie. It, it, it needs to be taken. And so if you don't want it, she'll take it to work tomorrow. But uh, it, if anybody wants is it loaves, like expired or something? it is going to. And so oh, the lady at 7-Eleven doesn't want to throw it away. So she gave it to me. Oh, so there it is. Okay. okay. Yeah. They're just not selling anything out on the key with the red tide. So 
Okay, 15.5. Verses 5 and 6 are as much a spontaneous prayer of petition as they are requests for harmony directed to those in Rome. The substance of everything he has penned since the beginning of the chap previous chapter is dealt with agreement between believers resulting from unity over disputable matters. Remember that? Chapter 14, disputable matters. Food days, food days. We went through for a whole chapter. All right. Only through such unity will there be like-minded attitude. Now, once again, he's speaking of what? What type of matters? Disputable. Something that can be disputed. There are things that are not to be disputed. We don't cave to people on the Trinity, on the deity of Christ, etc. Okay, disputable matters. Um, you know, we had, uh, I, I mentioned it last week, somebody uh, posted something about um, the Hebrew roots and we're not supposed to be eating pork and, you know, how, uh, on and on. And so I gave my comments and he went back and I just kept saying, you know, you're teaching heresy, you are a heretic, I want you to know that, what you're doing. There's no reason to be polite about it, you just be direct and you tell them where their error is. And he wanted to argue back and forth and finally I just stopped going. I, I keep getting notifications which tells me he's still trying to get me, he, he egg me back into that. But if something is disputable, that's fine. Let it go, let people be at peace, all right? And unfortunately, and I say this from time to time, there's a difference between bad doctrine and heresy. Heresy, you just don't fool with. You just take them out and let them know. You are teaching heresy, you are a heretic. If something is simply bad doctrine, you say, you know, I disagree with you on that. The Lord will show us in the end and you'll find out that there is a pre-trib rapture when you're the surprised one, but I'll be expecting it, you know? And people will call each other heretics over the timing of the rapture. That's absolutely crazy. Um, just so you know, I, I, if you want, go to my wall. I posted something on Facebook yesterday. Somebody had sent me an article on the sacrifices of Ezekiel's temple. Okay. I don't know if you read the, uh, I made it into a note. Yeah, I made it into a note rather than just a, uh, a post. And they asked, um, what is, they said, there's a debate that's going on between a couple of scholars on Facebook and they wanted my opinion. And I said, well, you know, it, I'll, I'll tell you what it means, but there's one guy that's saying that the temple sacrifices um, will be reinstituted and they will be effectual for um, people's salvation and things like that. And the other guy says, no, that's absolute heresy. Christ is the end of the law, those sacrifices, blah, and they, you know, they have their own little thing going on. And this guy is absolutely teaching heresy. There's no doubt about it. But when I went back and I said that, um, I said, there's first a debate as to whether this is actually a millennial temple at all. Okay, in other words, will what Ezekiel be describing be a millennial temple or is it something else? Is it symbolic of something else? And I said, that's debatable. Now, I'm not going to get into that issue now. I, what I did is I said, we will assume that this is a millennial temp temple. Okay, Ezekiel 44 and 45, I think. I can't remember the, uh, the chapters. But anyway, there's sacrifices going on in this temple in Ezekiel, which is obviously not the temple of Ezekiel's time. It's either something future or it's spiritual. So we'll assume that it's a millennial temple. And I said, we know that they are not effectual sacrifices. Well, then why would they have them? Well, if they're not effectual, then they are commemorative. That's right. They're a commemoration. They're commemorative. Okay. That would be the only logical reason for doing this. And my logic is, and it's impeccable, by the way, is that the temple sacrifices in the uh, Leviticus, which went for the uh, tabernacle, they went for the first temple, and they went for the second temple. Were not effectual, were they? 
Not one of them. Not one of them was an effectual sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats can not take away sin. So they weren't effectual in what they did. They were simply anticipating Christ. They were prefiguring Christ. If you watch the Leviticus sermons, you will see that. We went through them. These people don't need to watch them again. They're fully trained on that. But they are looking forward to Christ. They did nothing. They were sacrifices of faith in anticipation of Christ. Therefore, the ones that are in the Ezekiel temple are also not effectual. They cannot be effectual because they're not Christ. And so that person is actually teaching heresy. That is not a disputable matter. If, you know, if I got onto that board and commented, I would have started out very pointedly with him. I wouldn't have been nice to him. I would say, you're absolutely teaching heresy. You need to get away from this. But I'm not getting onto those discussion boards. You know, unless somebody sends me something and I have the time, I just don't have the time. So, I, but, you know, I gave this person that emailed me. She asked, what do you think about this? And I said, this is the answer. It, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it. If the sacrifices in the Old Testament were ineffectual, these cannot be effectual. There's just, it's impossible. Don't debate with people like that. They're not disputable. We're talking about disputable matters here. I know that took a while to get to this point, but we want to make sure that if something is disputable, that we don't argue over it. You know, we can argue to a point. You know, you can say, well, you know, you really shouldn't be worried about eating meat or pork or anything like that. Now, if they mandate no eating pork like that other guy, that's a different thing altogether. It's talking about what somebody has in their own conscience, okay? Disputable matters. Only through such unity will there, will there be a like-minded attitude. And that's what we need to try to have in Christianity. But we're so fractured and splintered, especially because of social media, that it's almost impossible. But, and so in order to promote this, I, this after his detailed discourse, chapter 14, he invokes God to be the one to bestow this divine favor. Let me read it again. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus. All right. Now, based on these topics of discussion and in hopes of fellowship within the covenant community, may the God of patience and comfort. These are Paul's words, and then I'm analyzing them. God's patience is seen throughout the Bible. He is long-suffering with those who are going astray, as he calls them back to himself. We can see that all the way through the Old Testament. Israel is is going astray. And what does he do? He calls them back to himself again and again and again. All right. Sometimes he does it through their enemies. Sometimes he does it through famine. Sometimes he does it through, you know, whatever means he does it. He calls them back to himself. He doesn't actively just say, I'm going to call you back, except through the words of the prophets. But sometimes actively he will do it. Like I said, through famine, through plague, through wars, through, you know, whatever. He will call the people, the what? Tsunamis. Well, not in uh, Israel. Maybe in, there might be a tsunami in uh, uh, Haifa or, you know, I don't know. But uh, yeah, he, but for the rest of the world, yes, yeah, tsunamis. Before I go on, Tom, Chip's service is going to be Sunday. Is that correct? No. Oh, it's not. not. This Saturday, but the following Saturday, the, 11 o'clock. Okay. I thought it was this Saturday. 29th. Okay, 29th. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, uh, going on. Oh, yeah. Calls back to himself. A beautiful example of this along with tsunamis, is his sending of the prophets to Israel for even hundreds of years, asking them to be of one mind with him instead of utterly destroying them as he turned away. He would send enemies to afflict his people in hopes that they would turn back to him in faith. Only when there was no remedy would he send them into exile, which is also, by the way, 
as much as a punishment, it's a call to get the people to come back to him. I mean, he says right there in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that I'm going to give you the exile, but I will never break my covenant with you. So as much as it was a punishment, it was also a call to get the people to come back to him. All right. Now, they've been in this place of punishment for 2000 years and they did not come back to him. They're in the land by his grace and for his plans and purposes, not because they humbled themselves and were called back to Israel because of their goodness. They're called back to Israel to bring the nations and the world to its end times, to the time when he will usher in the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, it, it, I don't care if it was another 2,000 years. Israel would not have humbled themselves and come back to the Lord. I, I just can't see it. The Old Testament had the prophets. Daniel was a prophet, and it is his prayer that initiated the ending of the 70 years and the call of the people back to the Lord, okay? The people in general do not do that. You just don't see it, and it certainly hasn't happened with Israel in the present times. Now, there are certain people since about the 60s, surprisingly, when we have the Jews for Jesus movement, and then, you know, the people, the Messianic movement, people are starting to understand who Yeshua is. So, in a way, they are being called back to the Lord, meaning the true Lord, Jesus, through uh, their getting to know their scriptures by finding out that there are people that actually believe in the Messiah, whereas before there might have been just a couple of Jews or in any given area that believed in Jesus. Now it's really growing. But that isn't equated with the national repentance and them coming back to Israel. Okay, so this is an act of mercy on his part, and it's also, as I said, to bring in the end times. But um, only when there was no remedy would he send them into exile. But even in exile, it had the intent of bringing them to repentance and fellowship once again. Through enemy attack, pestilence, famine, and exile, and tsunamis, the uh, God of patience and comfort was always there, maintaining covenant faithfulness to his wayward people. And then he goes on, this is Paul's words again, grant you to be like-minded toward one another. Paul's petition was the same patience and comfort displayed by, God's, by God towards his people, who would now, which would now be displayed between believers. God had set the example, taking many ages to complete his oracles to and through Israel. This is about 1,500 years. You figure from the time of Moses, about 1450 BC, up until the time of John the Baptist, even though he didn't record anything, that was the time of the prophets. And then after that, Christ came. And then from that time on, it is the word of the apostles. But the Old Testament, and if you were to take out the intertestamental period, does anybody know what that means? Intertestamental. Uh, 430 year period that's right where it was quiet the last prophet spoke who was malachi that's right and when his word ended there was no more future revelation until the time of john the baptist coming so there was this intertestamental period so if you take off that 430 or so years you're down to about um 1520 minus uh, 1430 would be what uh 1010 I, I, maybe I'm wrong, so don't write it down. Anyway, I'm trying to do math in my head, which is a scary thing. But anyway, um, that is the time period anticipating the coming of Christ. Okay, so um, let's see here. Uh, the prophecies continuously told of the coming Messiah, and the prophets continuously redirected the people in the interim. God asks us to have the same attitude. In other words, what I'm doing is I'm equating the Old Testament, God calling the people back to himself with us 
having the same attitude towards one another. We are to keep telling of the great deeds of Christ, who is the fulfillment of all that was previously written, and we are to work to redirect wayward believers to proper doctrine while overlooking the disputable matters which only divert our attention away from fraternal bond of fellowship. Like I said, you'll find people all over the world that will take disputable matters and they elevate them to heresy and they just they razor sharp cut people apart over those things. They'll point fingers at you and say, well, you're a heretic because, and like I said, when I do a prophecy update night, I will defend a pre-tribulation rapture. Inevitably, somebody will send me an email and just dice me into 10,000 pieces because I'm a heretic over a pre-tribulation rapture, which by the way is what the, the Bible teaches, but he's a mid-trib or he's a post-trib and he says, you're a heretic. It's not a heresy. You're reading the, he's reading the Bible wrong. He's analyzing it wrong. He was taught something incorrectly and he is calling this a heresy. It's not, it is a disputable matter because yes, we have the same book. Yes, it's very clear that pre-tribulation rapture is correct, but the verses can be interpreted differently or misinterpreted differently. And so it could be disputable. So that's the kind of thing that uh, there's no point in dividing fellowship over that. And there are a lot of things like that. And, you know, we talked about all of the things that, that uh, R.C. Sproul taught wrong. And I talk about all the things that he taught right. All right. I mean, it, I love the guy. I'll teach his doctrine when it's proper and I'll argue against it when it's wrong. That's just what you do. But there's no point in severing the bond of fellowship over it. Okay, anyway, um, so we have... Um, Is that the futility of the Gentile mind? Oh, it's the futility of the human mind. It's not just because the Jews will argue a lot more over even more petty issues than we will. Uh, I mean, they will divide hairs down to read some of their, their uh, comments in the, uh, the Talmud, and you just think, well, oh my gosh, you know. Anyway, so yeah, it, it's the futility of the human mind. We're just, um, a, a verse just came to mind that kind of goes along with what Paul is saying. And before I lose it out of my brain, let me see if I can find it. Because we're in the book of Hebrews in the morning studies. And um, he says, let me see if I can find this really quick. It's got to be in three or four. And Hebrews three, and maybe it's one of them I posted within the past day or two. And so that's why, um, uh, let me see here. I, I don't know. I, I just have to look for it and I'll, I'll um um, exhort one another. Here it is, 3.13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hindered through the deceitfulness of sin. He's asking them to exhort one another, which is what Paul is doing. Build each other up. Okay. And then he brings that again up in, um, uh, let's see if I can find the other one. He entered his rest. Um, verse 11, 411, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest any fall according to the same example of disobedience. That's not the verse I was looking for. Um, uh, let's see here. Let me look really quickly. Example of, yeah, okay, that's, that is it. It's 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest any fall according to the same example of disobedience. What he's doing is he's actually encouraging the Jews to tell the other Jews about this. And the reason why is because it's a corporate entrance into the millennium. It's not an individual thing that's being referred to in that verse. So let's exhort one another exactly as Paul would say here. Okay, going on. We are to keep telling of the great <laughs> deeds of Christ, who is the fulfillment of all that was previously written. And we are to work to redirect wayward believers to proper doctrine while overlooking disputable matters, which only divert our attention away from the fraternal bond of friendship. Okay, and then he goes on, according to Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus sought harmony between his followers and prayed to the Father for this, didn't he? John 17, 11. Let's go there. 
John 17, 11 says, Acts, Acts, John. Isn't it? Oh, it's marvelous. The high priestly uh, prayer and uh, his petitioning the Father. He says there in 17, 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are. There you go. So there, even Jesus petitioned for his apostles, his disciples, to be one as they, they are. Okay, And this is what Paul now continues to proclaim. As he said in the previous chapter, he said, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Rather than argumentation over disputable matters, there should be peace, harmony, and fellowship. These are the things which lead to godliness. In the book of Ephesians, Paul summarizes the thought in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says these words. He says, chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So even there, he's calling for peace and unity among the brethren. Once again, if somebody is teaching heresy, I have no problem if you attack on him. If the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at the door, give it to him. Give it to him, both barrels unlocked and loaded, okay, or whatever. The, the, yeah, I mean the, the, the trigger back, I guess that's unlocked, and then you, whatever. Anyway, um, you just, you, you don't want to mess around with people that are teaching heresy. It's, it, it's just not uh, it's something that you even want to entertain. And you can do it nicely, I suppose, but they're they're not going to listen to nice. I, I guarantee you, I, they're just not going to listen to nice. And they, and they usually, when he talks to them, they walk away. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying because he knows theology. Yeah. Absolutely. But if if you go in there and you're talking to these people and you say, "Well, I know that's not correct," then they're going to give you what they think is correct. Right. And if you can't answer them, that's why John exhorts you to not. He says, "Lest you share in their wicked right. work." Don't even right. hail them. Don't even greet them. You know, you want to have a debate with them on your stoop outside. Don't say hello in the process. Just say, you want to talk? Let's talk. Yes. Uh, Catholic Church. Yeah. Teaching heresy, and yet any of the Catholics who did not directly abide by them were the heretics. Oh, absolutely. They would call, it, 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 that's why they had the Inquisitions. That's why they destroyed their own people that disagreed with them. They did it to John Hus. They were going to do it. To, they would have done it to Martin Luther. No doubt about it. But, yeah, it, they were teaching Absolutely. And they still do. They teach things which are contrary to the Bible. I've said this before, and if it upsets people, that's fine. But the Catholic Church stopped being a Christian entity in 1546 at the Council of Trent. It, it, it That was the end of their what you would call true Christianity, if they had any at all. Now, that is not to say, and I said this to a guy yesterday, that's not to say that there aren't true Christians in the Catholic Church. Okay, there's a difference. Okay, there are, uh, let me take you to that verse right now so that if somebody will send me an email, what are you talking about? There are no Christians in the Catholic, and you get that too. You get people, yeah, all the time. Uh, you see posts about it and everything, but it says here in Revelation 3, verse 4, yet you have a few names, even in Sardis, a really crummy church like that, okay, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy, okay? Catholic Church teaches doctrine which is unbiblical. It's contrary to the Bible. You're not saved by, you're not justified by faith through grace, okay? And they go into that, the 
nine of the uh, cannons, which I have over here. We can go through them sometime, but not today. The uh, nine of the cannons are actually anti-biblical. They would call Paul a heretic. And I think it's two of them would actually say what Jesus taught was heresy. So they stopped being a Christian entity at that time. But there are believers in the Catholic Church, just like there are, you know, decent people in the Methodist Church who are trying to make a change. They're trying to keep their foot in the door and, you know, whatever. My hat is off to them because I don't have that type of patience. I do not have that type of patience to stay in a church which has gone down the tubes yeah. and say, we need to change. We need to. It's not in me. It, it just walk away and go somewhere else. But uh, the charge of heresy today has become on a par nauseous with racism. At, oh, absolutely. It's because that's exactly. It's like okay, I I'm not. No, but you don't agree with me, so therefore I'm a heretic. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, what what you need to do if somebody says what you're teaching is heresy is define heresy for them. Okay. Will this keep somebody from being saved? If they say no, then say then you are using that term inappropriately. End of story. Now, if they say there is, I, and I said this during an update one time, is that there is a person out there that was saying that teaching a pre-tribulation rapture was a heresy. He actually called it a heresy. And that guy needs to be called out on that. That's all there is to it, because it's not, and this is a teacher. This just wasn't some guy arguing on social media. This was, anyway, so uh, uh, you're right, though. It's, it's become just, it, it's troubling to see people that just have their finger pointing at everybody. Every single person, it doesn't matter. Eventually, they're going to get to that person. They're eventually going to. They're going to argue with you over some minor little matter. It's not worth even. That's the type of person they say, warn them once, warn them twice, and have nothing to do with them. Nothing. Just be done with them. <laughs> anyway, uh, life application here. <clears throat> life is short enough without wasting time on bickering and disputes. And our Christian life is far too precious to be spoiled by them as well. Let Christ and his perfect doctrine be your deepest desire, your highest joy, and your constant aim. Verse 6. So, that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Almost identical. I'm going to read both together now. It's almost like he's making a sudden prayer. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the previous verse asked us to be like-minded toward one another. And in the completion of the thought, the reason is given to us in verse 6. The ultimate goal of our lives and conduct should be directed to the glorification of God. The first question of the what catechism? Anybody know what I'm going to ask now? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks and answers their first question. They have a whole catechism. Their first question was written by a very young guy, too, like in his early 20s. What is the chief end of man? That's their first question in all of the catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Absolutely, she's got it memorized. There you go. Now, once again, Westminster Shorter Catechism is based on what type of theology? It begins with an R and ends with a E-formed. Anybody? Reformed. Okay, and it was a Presbyterian, yeah, I believe, that actually wrote it. That's correct, but it's based on Reformed theology. Okay, and so when you quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you will get those same finger pointers saying, you shouldn't be quoting that. That's, once again, is that a true statement or is that not a true statement? true statement? It is a true statement. The chief end of man is to glorify God. That is a true statement, and to enjoy him forever is a secondary but true statement. 
Okay, nothing wrong with that. If people have a problem with details of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's fine. But to say that you shouldn't be reading that is like saying you shouldn't be reading Thomas Aquinas because he was in the Catholic Church. That's people that just don't have time for learning. Instead, they'd rather just spout out what they think they know. Yeah, take their finger and point, but they don't want to learn. I, oh, it was a great post. I wish I saved it. Um, you know, a meme. I read it a little while ago. And uh, oh, it, here's this may be not exact quote, but it said something girl's faces like this. And it says, I understand that Joel Olstein and one other teacher teach false, um, false, teach a false gospel or a false doctrine or something. And she says, oh, no. Now I've got to read the Bible to find out if that's true. <laughs> How true is that? How true is that? That people will do anything except go to the source. Yes, that's they'll do anything but go to the source. They'll go, they'll go to site after site after site looking for the answer that they want. Instead of just going to the Bible and saying, I'm going to read this. I'm so proud of the people that are listening to the NIV now that that guy sent those NIV lives and they're listening to him. And I wrote him and I said, I, you, you just don't know what this means to my heart that you have sent these because people are listening to them. They're getting enriched in the word of God as they drive. I mean, or as they're doing whatever they're doing. It's wonderful. I'm up to uh, Joshua yesterday afternoon. Aiken got dispatched and then... Uh, uh, they finally beat the people in I, Aiken, you know, when they had to, okay, and then today I'm, anyway, I'm up in the middle of Joshua, somewhere they're counting that, you know, the names of all the cities you that got destroyed. sitting but, in a parking lot waiting for something to end before you get out of the car? Always, yeah. yeah. I, I'll sit and wait. If there's something that I want to hear, I'll just sit and wait. And well, Or today, which I never do, I never waste gas. I'm telling oh. you, when I get to the bank, off goes the key and I go inside, right? But today I had my hot dog. It was a Bahama Mama from 7-Eleven. And I thought, I'm going to sit here and listen to this and eat instead of turning off the car and going in. And then I usually eat while I'm driving. I, I didn't do that today. I just sat there and listened to the, the Bible. And then I went into the bank. So Bahama Mamas were really good. Okay. Anyway, so um, the uh, shorter, it, it, they'll give you a stomachache if you're not ready. They're really big. So just be prepared. Anyway, um, let's see here. Man's chief end is truly to glorify God. But how can we do this when there is divisiveness? I mean, it's just not possible. If you're arguing with people, you're not glorifying God. Okay. If there's backfighting, if there's finger pointing over matters in which he has allowed us the freedom to choose. Once again, this is not speaking of heresy. Okay. In the Bible are many directives we are asked to obey. These are given by God both for our good and for his glory. Anybody dispute that? That's why they're given. Okay. So when we fail in these things, we fail to glorify him. And so learning doctrine and applying it to our lives has the end goal of glorifying him. When we are sitting in a Bible class learning, we are glorifying God because that is, we're learning something about what he expects us, expects of us in the first place, okay? When we read the Bible and when we think about it, and when we make notes in our Bible, we're actually glorifying God because he has given us this word so that we can know him. And we can't glorify God unless we properly have a relationship with him. If we have an improper relationship, like a Hindu over in, in uh, India, are they glorifying God? Absolutely not, because they do not have a proper relationship with God. Buddhists don't either. Okay, I don't care. Pick any religion other than biblical Christianity and you are Judaism is not glorifying of God. That may upset people when I say that, but that's all there is to it. It is not rebuilding the temple, which is coming soon to a, a tribulation period near you, is not glorifying of God. It says it's going to happen in his word, 
but it is not something that God would ask to be done at that time. At that time, he would ask them to come to Jesus and be saved. Yes, there will be a temple in the millennium. Yes, Christ will reign for them. But that temple that is being built is not for the purpose of glorifying God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's for going back to temple worship, which, by the way, is what the book of Hebrews warns against, right? That's what it warns against, okay? It is not glorifying of God. Rabbinic Judaism has zero to do with glorifying God. All right. Just be understanding of that. That's not to hate Jews. That's not to hate Buddhists. That's not to hate Hindus. That is the reality of the situation. He's given us this book so that we can learn about him and glorify him by what we do in that process. Okay. So uh, let's see here. Um, uh, yes, that's right. And so considering it from that perspective, how can we glorify God with a freedom we have been granted if we turn it into a mandate. And I talked about this before, okay? We've been granted a freedom to not eat certain meats or to eat certain meats. And if we sit in a church and they mandate that we can't eat that particular food, which God has said is good, I'm convinced by God that all things are clean, right? Or nothing is unclean in and of itself or however he said it back in Romans 14, all food is good, okay? And we mandate that you can't eat that. How can we be glorifying of God? We cannot be. And that's why when I said the prayer, when we started us today, Lord, if I am wrong in my doctrine, because I know that won't be glorifying of God, I would pray that these people would be led to somebody that is teaching what's correct in it, because we want to glorify God with our doctrine, okay? If we, one can think through such issues from this perspective, we can see how destructive legalism is. Everybody remember what legalism is. You got the liberal churches which take away from the word of God. Oh, we can, we don't have to uh, not ordain homosexuals. We can have women preachers. We can do this. We can do that. We do one thing after another. That's taking away from what the word of God says. Legalism is plugging it in, adding something in, no dancing. You know what? I saw a picture of a gentleman on Facebook today and, oh, just a nice guy. And he was, picture of him, he's an older guy and he's doing the jitterbug in a, a, a dance hall. He said, I grew up being taught that dancing was sin. And he says, it's good at an old age to learn to do the jitterbug. Uh, and I thought, praise God. Uh, He's freed from some bondage that some legalistic person put into his life. I misquoted that. I'm sorry if he watches these, which he probably doesn't. But if he does, I didn't mean to misquote him. But that's basically what he said, okay? So anyway, um, uh, legalism is absolute poison. As nice as the people were in the church I attended down the road, as much as I loved them, there was a lot of legalism there, wasn't there? I mean, she knows that very well. Yeah, don't do this, don't do that. Got to use this version of the Bible. It went on and on and on, right? But we attended because that's where kids went to school. That church is not there any longer, or if it is, it's under a different name probably, and the school's under a different name. So I don't mind saying it now, but anyway, Charlie, it was... I have a question yeah. about the legalism part. Years ago, was legalism more a part of what was taught oh yeah oh yeah because people were unschooled okay? okay nowadays we have a bible we have we can go to bible right. studies online right. most people in the older days sat in a church there was one church in town they would listen to a guy and whatever he decided that was pretty much it i mean it, 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 that was pretty much it because my grandmother told me you couldn't Play cards on Sunday. Oh, yeah, no playing cards on Sunday. Well, where does that come from? It comes from somebody that probably grew up with baggage of his own. I always say that most Baptist preachers were once alcoholics because they, you can't drink in a Baptist church, right? Well, that's not in the Bible, okay? But somebody had to come to the decision where they were going to impose that standard on other people. And then what did they do? They did it on a national level in the, um, what do you call it, the uh, prohibition 
They brought in an and what did it do? It made things 50 times worse, right? The Kennedys got rich, people got killed, and they decided this isn't going to work out, and they, they abolished prohibition, okay? But that was because fundamentalist, legalist Christians were behind that, and they pushed that, thinking, we're going to get rid of this thing, okay? They did get rid of it, and it only made things worse, and the, the same people that wanted to get rid of it, guaranteed, were in the next town over buying it that night. I mean, you know, they just... It, it, legalism is poison. To, to, to think back, and I, I often wonder, yeah, why? Where did that all come from? Because you know, just one thing gets one one yeah, it, one thing gets heaped on another, and the more that you can have legalism in your church, the more control you got over those people. True. You know what? It's the same thing as teaching people that you can lose your salvation. You teach them that they can lose their salvation. Guess what? They're where they're going to be on Sunday morning. Okay, I got to be good. I don't want you know. That's what the Catholic Church did for eons. You know, you got to come through us or you can't be saved. You need to give us money and we'll get people out of purgatory and on and on. Anytime that you can bring in a type of bondage, whatever it is, you have control over those people. You want to see control people? Go to the Seventh-day Adventist church out there. I, our children used to go out there to play the uh, violin. Those people are under real bondage, okay? So they say that the Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know if it's still true, but it was a couple of years ago, they had the highest rate of suicide of any Christian denomination. Well, they're not Christian. That's right. They're not Christian. But if they're going to be lumped into that category, it doesn't surprise me a bit. Okay. Anyway, uh, so legalism. Um, it is a system which actually denies God the glory that he is due. This is why with one mind and one mouth, we should glorify God, not with the imposition of pet peeves on others, but with gratitude for the liberties he has granted us and obedience to the things he has directed us. In so doing, we will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our family relationship in Christ is seen in a tender and beautiful way in Paul's statement here. God the Father accepted Christ and his death on our behalf, proving it in the resurrection. When we are found in Christ, then we are found to be children of God. As God's children, just like the children of any family, we honor our parent through obedience, but we also honor a parent honor our parent through family love and harmony. When divisiveness rears its ugly head in a family, think of your own kids if you have more than one, when they were fighting, when they were bickering, there was no peace in that family, right? Okay, it reflects negativity on the parents. How much more so when divisiveness is a prominent feature uh, of the church of God's people? Get onto social media and see people tearing each other apart. And is that glorifying of God? No, absolutely not. You know, you never see me post those stupid posts about Joel Osteen. I don't care what Joel Osteen teaches. If somebody asks me, I will tell them, you know, you'll get better theology somewhere else. But I'm not going to make up a meme and say how bad this person is. I don't care. That's not my job. My job is not, if I want to have a page on my website that evaluates different preachers, which I don't have time to do, but I'd have no problem with that. I'd say, you know what? Adrian Rogers was a great preacher. I disagreed with him on this issue. Sound theology, listen to him, okay? And I'd go down the list. That would be fine. But if you're going to be posting memes all day about how bad other people are, you've got your own serious problem. Yeah. And I've, I've got all kinds of friends on social media that do that kind of stuff. It helps nothing. It, all it does is, what do you do? You get a bunch of comments from people. Oh, yeah. Amen, brother. Amen, sister. And then you get a couple people that say, well, I like what they teach. And then people start arguing and they start getting into even more minor arguments. It's just, it's pointless. Anyway, 
Okay. What? The only exception would be the flat earth thing. Yeah, the flat earth thing. I love to get involved in that. I love to. That's so you know, dumb. I, I know it's dumb, but you know what? I, I just, it's it's well, just fun to pick on them. Look out the window. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you don't. You see a curve. And the higher you get, the more the thing curves. I know. It's just stupid. You know, but stop. You know, people have a need. They have a need to be controlled. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter who said this, but a good friend of ours that lives in Israel said, when I first heard that, I thought it was a, 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 joke. a joke. And then yeah. afterward, he started thinking, why would somebody believe that in other other right. of these conspiracies? It's because people have a need to want, you know, these governmental conspiracies. Yeah. People have a need to want to hate their government. They want to have a need to blame people about those things. And it goes with any of them. Flat Earth, Tom is a flat earther. He, he believes in it. I, I mean, we have fun together. No, I'm kidding. He's not. <laughs> he, he was like, what? Anyway, life application. Paul is in no way compromising doctrine in his writing during Romans 14 and Romans 15. Everybody got that? He is not compromising doctrine. He is upholding doctrine. But he is also showing us that those issues which are left unstated must be considered as freedom freedoms for us to enjoy without divisiveness and infighting okay and even some that are stated because he clearly said that all foods are acceptable so it is stated but he said it's not worth arguing over don't do it i'd rather not eat meat again than blah 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 i know that's a misquote but there you go verse 15 7. accept one another then just as christ accepted you in order to bring Praise to God. Okay, once again, a little different. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Okay? Therefore, ask us to again stop, consider, and then act. Based on the preceding six verses of chapter 15, as well as the entire scope of thought, which was relayed in chapter 14, all dealing with the same basic subject, we are to receive one another. Concerning disputable matters, some have failings and some have strengths, and they may be in differing areas so that the one who is strong in one area may actually be weak in another. We'll see that in our own selves at times. And then there is the added context of the previous chapter of Romans, which address issues more directly to either Jews or Gentiles based on their previous state. I said chapter, it's chapters, all the way through from 1 until uh, 13. The Jews came from a point of knowledge about the true God, which the Gentiles lacked. However, the Gentiles came from a point of freedom in what are now disputable matters, which were clearly forbidden under the law, but which are now set aside in Christ. I would like to add in one thing about that. I said this in the sermon one time, and of course people took offense at it. I said, if you think about it, Christ's coming came at a time and in an empire where it was actually possible for people to understand what a trinity is because they had no concept of that in the Old Testament, even though there are hints of it in the Old Testament. They were, do you want proof of it? Ask them about it today. Ask a Jew, a believing Jew about the trinity today, and they will say that is not in scripture. It is So it was something that was un unknown to them, even though it's implied in the Old Testament. And you take them to the verses and they'll actually say, I didn't know that was there. But to their mind, there is no such thing as, as a trinity. And I said in a sermon one time, I said that Christ came at a time when people could now understand this. Why? Because of a guy named... Galileo. No, came after... Uh, no, Galileo came much later. There were three philosophers. Oh. Socrates, and then uh, begins with a P, um, Plato. Plato, and then the third one was... 
begins with an A, ends with Aristotle. Aristotle. Yeah, Aristotle. Okay, so Aristotle built on the other two, but he it was a great mind, and he understood the nature of God almost to the point where he came this close to understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. But he didn't have the scriptures of God. He could not have come to a saving knowledge of God without Jesus Christ and without the oracles of God. But it was through the Greek mind that these ideas became possible. And what language is the New Testament written in? It's written in Greek. Now you ask a Hebrew roots movement person and they're going to say, of course, the originals were in Hebrew or in Aramaic or whatever language they want. They weren't. They were written in Greek. That is evident. They were not written in Hebrew. Uh, just so that people know this, because I've said this, it has been quite a while since I said this. The way that we know that the New Testament was written in Greek is because in the New Testament, there are again and again right. statements that say, which in the original language or which in the Hebrew means, Gabbatha means, which is Aramaic, or this word in Hebrew means, as translated as, okay? When they do that, that means that unless that verse, that entire verse doesn't belong in the Bible, it means that it was written in Greek, and it was. It was written in Greek. We know that because it follows after the what New Testament or Old Testament? The Greek Old Testament. When somebody cites Jesus, when somebody when somebody uh, cites the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews, it is almost always out of the Greek Old Testament. Almost always. The Septuagint, which predates Christ by about 300 years. They will at times cite the Hebrew. There are times when they cite the Hebrew scriptures, but normally it is from the Greek, okay? That was the language of the empire. It was the most known language. And they have all of this body of knowledge. Even Paul quotes Greek philosophers. And so at the time of Christ's coming, it was the logical language to use. It's much more precise. It gets rid of any ambiguity in many, many ways, but then it adds some in in other ways, like our languages do as well. But just so you know that... Um, uh, it, it is something that was a great help for us to have the Greek language and the New Testament in the Greek language. And it was also kind of like a sign of the exile of Israel, kind of like, you know, you guys are out, you're not going to participate in this, and so I'm going to do it in this language so that you're going to... Oh. And now eventually, all these years later, they're starting to come back in and understand these things, slowly but surely. But anyway... Um, the, uh, where was I? And then there's the added context of the previous chapters in Romans. Okay. The Jews came from a point of knowledge about the true God, which the Gentiles lacked. However, the Gentiles came from a point of freedom and what are now disputable matters, which was clearly forbidden under the law, but which is now set aside in Christ. And so the stronger has actually become the weaker in many ways if they remain uninformed or conscious, conscience stricken over the liberties we may now exercise. Everybody understand that? The stronger, which is the ones with the knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, of the uh, uh, Messiah, of all of those things, they were in the stronger theological position. Now they've become the weaker because they're the ones that don't want to eat what God has said is clean, okay? So things have kind of been turned upside down in this regard. Because of this, we are asked to receive one another just as Christ also received us. How did Christ receive the Jew? as a Jew who was observant to their laws. That's how he came as a Jew and he was observant to their laws. Paul on the road to Damascus wasn't told first to give up his identity and then Christ would reveal himself to him. Instead, he came in all of his glorious radiance to a man who was bent on punishing those of the faith, meaning the new faith. And the Holy Spirit didn't come down on Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 after making them go through many rites of purification and instruction on foods they could and couldn't eat, did he? It says that they 
heard the word of the Lord and the Holy Spirit came down on them and they had bacon and eggs for breakfast, right? Probably a side of ham too. I, I, the same thing they had the day before. And the same thing they had the day before and the day before and the day before. And yet the Holy Spirit accepted them. You know what? And I even said that to this guy that I was very shortly debating. And it's like, it, it was like deer in the headlights. It, that means nothing. All of these things, Peter rebuking Paul, or Paul rebuking Peter in uh, Galatians chapter two and three, means nothing, it, 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 absolutely nothing, because he's got it set in his head that I am right and I'm going to, I'm going to take a leap into the lake of fire rather than be proved wrong. Sorry, doesn't work that way. Okay, so um, yeah, they came down on, down that on them in Acts chapter ten, and he came down upon them as a group of Gentiles with no specifically recorded knowledge of the Jews' law, zero. They had no knowledge of the law at all. All they heard was that Jesus died for their sins, received that, etc. Whatever it says in Acts chapter 10, go read it. That's all, okay? Nothing else is recorded. Well, you need to get circumcised, and you need to start worshiping on Saturdays. And this guy, Moses, has got five books that are really big, and you've got to memorize them. And if you get any of it wrong, you're going to go to heck, right? None of that is said. Not one word of that is said. It says that they explained the message. The Holy Spirit came down, and he said, can we refrain from giving them water? Can we not baptize them okay they had been received okay same thing happens time and time again around the world today we don't unless you're teaching heresy we don't get into the law of moses at all do we we just tracks over there got lots of new ones grab some on the way out hand them out all you need to do is just uh hand it over to them and what does it say it says that there's a problem with man sin is the problem jesus is the answer does it say don't eat pork before you uh, accept jesus no doesn't say any of that we don't need that type of theology to introduce somebody to Jesus. What? Repent. Yeah, repent. When I look for them, I always read. You can read the comments on the ones that you order. And I always, you know how you do a search on, uh, you do um, control S and then you search for a word. Okay, I always search for the word repent. If it's in there, I won't get that one. I, I, I won't order that track. And the reason why is because repentance is necessary under certain conditions. If you have heard of Jesus Christ and said, I don't want that then you need to repent of that. That's called changing your mind. You do not need to repent of sin in order to be saved. You are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I am an alcoholic. I need Jesus. Does it say clean yourself up? Stop drinking before you come to Christ? Or it says come to Christ. I am the great physician. I will heal you of this, right? Now your mind may have changed about being an alcoholic, but you haven't changed your drinking habits yet, have you? You're probably going to go to the bar that night and then you're going to take a drink and you're going to say, no, it doesn't taste good anymore. And the Lord's going to work on you and he's going to change you. But when it says repent, people say that you got to repent in order to be saved. They have put the horse behind the cart and he's got to push for the rest of his life. He's got to push that cart for the rest of his life. That is inappropriate theology. Okay. Now the debate is, I had a debate with my good friend uh, about that issue a week or two ago. What if a person says, you add into the Bible, you're a homosexual, you cannot be a homosexual, okay, according to the New Testament. And he says, I'm going to do it anyway, but I'm going to receive Jesus. I would say he's not saved, okay? Not because he didn't repent of doing what he's doing. It's because he says, I'm not going to repent of what I'm doing. I'm going to continue in this the rest of my life. He is not putting the Lord in the proper place. He's not calling on him as Savior. He's calling on him as a cosmic ATM so I can get out of whatever. So the, the, the best thing to do is to say, you know what? You have a sin problem. 
Christ is the answer to the sin problem. Come to Christ and he will take care of you. And the person will be saved. And then he's going to go back and keep doing the things he's done. He's going to keep shooting drugs, whatever he's doing. And the Lord is going to work on him. And if not, it's not going to change his salvation, but he'll eventually die of whatever his, his sin is. But salvation comes by grace through faith. Let's read it. Let's do this before we go one word further, just so that people understand what being saved is. It's very clear. Let's not add to what it says. Romans chapter 10, okay, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say anything else. It doesn't say uh, get your hair cut. It doesn't say do this or that or one thing or another. That's it. And then he explains it in verse 10. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Okay. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That is it. That is how you become saved. Now, if you want to understand what the contents of that are, what the contents of that salvation are, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you read the first two or three verses. It says here, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. This is the gospel, okay, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So this is what you're doing in Romans 10, is you're believing this here. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then it goes on and it says he was seen by certain other people. That's not required for salvation. What verses three and four are what you need to focus on. He was, uh, Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Meaning that he is, if he rose again, he is alive. He's not a dead God. He was buried. He came out of the grave. He's alive. You're calling on a live risen Savior. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Take that and now apply it there. And that is it. Okay. So don't muddy the waters. And when you hand out tracts, try to hand out tracts. It don't say repent and you will be saved. Okay. Because all you're doing is you are putting a stumbling block in front of that person. It's been, it's been completely misused to the point. Now, I will say this. Somebody that sends out a lot of um, uh, really good stuff on the Bible, almost daily, I get sometimes three or four a day from him, sent me something, I think it was from Chuck Swindoll. And he went and he took Mark 7 and it said um, uh, that he explained what repent means, change your mind, and then he says, and blah, blah, blah. And then he went through his whole thing about... Uh, you know, is it Lordship Salvation, which John MacArthur teaches, or is it easy believism? And he says, well, I don't know really what that means. He said, it was very good commentary, but I found a problem with it. Um, he said, I don't, he said, is that something opposed to hard believism? I mean, it's just a, a phrase that people throw out to make you think like, oh, that it, it can't be that easy. When it is, that's why it's called a stumbling block is because it's that easy. Okay. But my comment back to my friend that sent me this was it's a very good commentary but he's taking his example of being saved from the wrong book because he's taking it from the book of mark which is before christ died for our sins so he has already started in a wrong position and then i said that will automatically cause a contradiction later in somebody's uh analysis of what he says because what does it say in luke uh i think it's luke 13 pray that you may be counted worthy right, right. to stand before the Son of Man. Well, if you're saved here by grace and all of a sudden you have to pray to be counted worthy, then it wasn't by grace because he's speaking prior to his 
death, burial, and resurrection. When you talk about New Testament theology, do it from the epistles of Paul, okay? That will always have you on the good stead. Now, once again, it was a very good analysis. The only problem I had with it was the idea of taking his basic verse, his text verse out of Mark. It's not a good place to start. Other than that, it was a good analysis, okay? And his thought about easy believism as opposed to hard believism was outstanding. There is no such thing as easy believism. Christ has made it easy. We believe, call it whatever you want, okay? But because it's so easy, it is a stumbling block, and that's what Paul right, calls it. Everyone wants to work. They want to work their way to heaven. They want to work their way to heaven. Okay, so um, where were we? Yeah, it came down and fire on them. Um, okay, I gave that example of um, the Holy Spirit coming down on Cornelius. We've got a few minutes. In these and every other instance in church history, Christ has received his people in the state that they were in. Every instance. There's not one instance where he didn't receive somebody in the state that they were in. Some have been miserable alcoholics, sexually depraved souls, arrogant finger pointers that probably still need to be saved in some cases, greedy money grubbers, and so on. But there was a moment when Christ touched their hearts and changed them. Each of them came with all of their previous baggage and their converted souls. He converted their souls. The things which require changing because they are mandated by Christ, such as drunkenness, sexual immorality, and so on, are the things they were told to leave behind. But there are other things that are not delineated in the word. What foods to eat, what days to worship on, and so on. In these things, and for Jew and for Gentile alike, there was a receiving of the person by Christ. And no demand for change, was there? No demand for change. You can do whatever you want in this issue. It is not something that is stated at all in the Bible, or it's used an example of something that we don't worry about, as in the case of foods, which Paul used, okay? The things, uh, there was no demand for those change in those things. And so we are asked to accept them in like manner. Why? Because God has already accepted them in that manner. They want to eat a pork chop every day for the rest of their life, hats off to them, okay? If they want to have vegan food, okay, tastes pretty good. She did a good job. I didn't eat meat for about five years, and she did a good job, but I, I just, I finally gave it up realizing that, you know what, as, as much as I love animals, well, you know what, I got to tell you something, what is star something is what it's called, you get over in oh, Publix, yeah, and yeah. they make bacon, yeah. tastes pretty much like bacon, it's yeah. really not bad, but I, I just came to, I struggled with what happened to animals in the processing, I really did, and I finally thought, you know what, you, you turn on Discovery Channel, and what is one cat doing to, uh, they're eating each other, they're, they're, everything eats everything else. And I thought, you know what, I'm a part of this system. Like it or not, I am a part of this system and God has ordained this in Genesis chapter nine and I'm gonna be a part of it. I'm not gonna isolate myself from it. And I'm so glad that I came to that epiphany because it's very good to eat. Okay, anyway, um, so here we are. The things, uh, yeah, they're not mandated. Okay, there you go. And so we are asked to accept them in a like manner. Who are we to judge what Christ has already accepted? Who are we to reject the one that he's already received? Are we in place of God? Some may think so, but the answer is no. This has been the constant theme of chapters 14 and 15. It's been the constant theme. We've gone through it and we've gone through it and we've gone through it. We must allow what is not forbidden and we must forbid that which is not allowed. That's why I said when people stay in churches that have already started to allow things that are forbidden, I don't know how they can do it. Yet there are some of you who are worthy. You will walk with me dressed in white. 
They stay in churches like that, and I, I, I applaud them. I mean, they have something in them that I could never bring out of myself. I couldn't do it. But you know what? That's their choice. Hey, there you go. They want to make a change in that church. They, they want to do it. I, I wish that I had that in me, but I don't. I would rather sit on the outside and say, you know what you're doing is completely perverse. What you're doing is wrong, okay? I don't want to be in a church like that. And, you know, I'm frustrated enough being in this country, much less in a church like that. It's just adding salt into a wound, all right? We must allow what is not forbidden. We must forbid what is not allowed. But we must know which is which, and therefore we must know the Bible as given to us by God. In doing so, and in acting in accord with his precepts, we will receive others to the glory of God. And this is the end goal of all of redemptive history, God receiving the glory that he is due. This is not a vain, self-seeking glory, but God allowing us to share in his glory by seeing the Son in his rightful position at the right hand of the Father and are fellowshipping with him for all eternity. That is what is glorifying of God. Now, just so you know, every time I bring this up, somebody emails me that particular verse and they said, I'll say that God has no parts, okay? We will never see God. Jesus Christ is the one that reveals the unseen Father to us. And they always send me that verse and they say, well, it says that he's standing at the right hand of God. What is the right hand of God? It's a symbolic picture of power. The right hand is the symbol of authority. Go read it all the way through the Bible. The right hand, the symbol of authority, the symbol of a power. That is where Christ is at. He is in the place of authority and power. What? Every phrase in the world, he's my right hand. He's my right hand man. Like, no, but we can't do that. We can't do that, that with God the Father. Oh, yeah. I, only with God the Father, he has to be there and have a, a physical right hand. No, if he has a right hand, he ain't God. That's all there is to it, because if he has a physical hand or a physical appearance, then time is associated with that appearance, and therefore he isn't God, because God created time, he created space, and he created matter, okay? There, matter is inside of space. When you have matter, it's getting older. The three are united. They cannot exist apart from one another. The three are, all came into existence at the exact same moment, time, space, and matter. If he has parts, it ain't God, okay? Jesus stands at the right hand in the place of power and authority of God. Okay, so uh, let's see here. We can realize a small portion of that now, meaning fellowship, fellowshipping with God right now by accepting others without dispute over doubtful matters. In doing so, we acknowledge the greatness of Christ who has already accepted them from the jungles of Southeast Asia to the plains of Africa. From the large cities of Europe to the coastal hamlets of Latin America, people from all over the world are coming to Christ with unique languages, interesting styles of music and instruments, unusual foods to eat, and so on. Durian, anybody? I love it. And yet they are members of the body of Christ. He is glorified through the diversity, and our acceptance of those things reflects this. What Christ has received, let us look at with great pleasure life application i think unless this next one is short i'm going to bail out of here it is we'll do one more um life application instead of judging others for the things they do differently as worshipers of jesus let us look at their traditions and modes of worship as wonderful aspects of the overall splendor of what christ has earned purchasing people from every tribe tongue and nation each with unique abilities and offerings to the glory of god okay 15.8. Sure. Yes. 
I know you don't like fish. I can't stand fish. <laughs> that's the only thing that the Lord cooked on the earth. Well, that's true. And I, I do like that, um, the big one that... Uh, um, no, no, it's the oh, big one out in the... No, the one we no. No, it's out in the the uh, east. It's like flounder here, yeah, but it's huge, really big. Huge, um, halibut. Cal halibut. Halibut. Thank you. I I really like that. Tastes like chicken. Okay. So go ahead. Verse eight. Eight. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. Okay. It's a little different by one word, and you'll see it when I say it. Now I say that. Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision instead of the Jews for the truth of God to confirm the purpose of promises made to the fathers. Now, once again, you could say, well, that's not a good translation because it says Jews and not circumcision. Well, guess what? It's just them saying that the Jews are the circumcision. So let's not split hairs over it. Okay. That's right. I go to the circumcision. That's right. He's the apostle to the circumcision. Okay. 15, 8 and verses 8 through 12. Paul is going to make an observation concerning the all-encompassing work of Christ for and toward the people of the world, both Jew and Gentile. As he said in the preceding verse, we are to receive one another just as Christ Jesus, or just as Christ also received us. This includes both Jew and Gentile, and he will demonstrate this now. And so he begins with, now I say. He is affirming in advance what he is about to relay. His words in Greek are comparable to us saying, I say indeed, okay? This is what I have to, to relate to you. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. The word Christ in Greek means the same thing as the Hebrew word as Messiah, okay? That's right. They both mean anybody? Anointed one. That's right. The anointed one. Messiah. It comes from the word Messiah, Mashiach, which means to anoint, okay? And both words literally mean, oh, here it is, anointed one. Paul is saying that Jesus is this anointed one of God. And in this role as the Messiah of the Jews, he became a servant to the circumcision. The term circumcision specifically means the covenant people. It's just like saying one is, what's the word when you have the same, they mean the same thing? Synonymous. Syn synonymous, thank you. Okay, they're synonymous. All right. Paul is saying that Jesus is the anointed one. He's, uh, the term is synonymous, specifically meaning the covenant people. The rite was initiated in Genesis. Anybody remember where? Genesis chapter? It was after. Right after 16, but before 18. Anybody? Uh, 17. 17, thank you. It's in Genesis 17 is where circumcision was brought in. to. Conf oh, you know, it's funny. We were talking about that before class today. I, I'm not going to. I'm not. You want to know after I turn off the camera, I'll, I'll let you know it. It was a very good question. I've always thought, asked the same question in my mind, but um, I, I have an answer, which I think answers it. Okay. No, 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 no. I, move on. Yeah, we will move on. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, Genesis 17 to confirm the covenant between God and Abraham. This covenant line went through Isaac, Jacob, and to the 12 sons of Israel. Had Jesus not been born through the Jewish people, he could not have been the Messiah of the Jews because the covenant line was defined through them. Being, but being born of this line, he was so qualified. And so as a member of this covenant community, he became a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. He left his exalted heavenly position. And as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, let me take you there. Wonderful words. It's called the canonic hymn. Philippians 2, he says, 
Um, yes, seven and eight, but made himself of no reputation. This is Christ, the creator of all things, made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, even the death of the cross. Okay, this humbling of himself had to occur in order to confirm the promises made to the fathers. The Old Testament is filled with promises of one who would come to correct the fallen state of man. The first promise was made to Adam just after the fall. After him, they continued to be made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, and so on. The promises continued in the prophets as their, their proclamations clarified the role of this coming Messiah. These promises are so numerous and so detailed that ultimately only one person could ever, could ever meet them all. This then is one of the purposes of the Gospels. They show that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises. The book of Acts continues to demonstrate this, and then the epistles explain his work as the servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, as Paul says. God spoke, God fulfilled. His word has proven itself both true and reliable. But the work of Christ did more than fulfill the promises to the people of the circumcision. There was another group to be included in Messiah's work. Paul will continue to explain the details in the verses ahead, coming soon to a Bible study near you. Life application, if the Bible is from God, then it will be reliable, infallible, and inerrant Chicago Statement of Faith that we went through in all it proclaims and teaches. The things it claims will happen will surely come to pass because it meets these standards. It demonstrates that it is truly the word of God. And so what it expects of us is authoritative. It is to be the guide for our life and for our doctrine. So let us continue to apply its precepts to our lives to the glory of God. So how do you know this is truly the word of God? Because it validates itself it through prophetic it validates rebel itself through atheists oh yeah through atheists hate this absolutely anything else absolutely the, the very it's fact like... that it's hated the way it is i mean you can you can you can not curse anybody else's god without getting really either blown up or being accused of some type of blasphemy but they can say the name of jesus all day long right they all day long they can whatever it just you know what that's absolutely true it validates itself in humanity it validates itself in in the nature. nature it validates itself and what it proclaims and what the predictive prophecy everything before we say a prayer i want to say hi to karen out in louisiana hi karen she said she'd be here for bible class today so anyway here we go huh hi i saw her on uh on uh facebook and when i was here earlier before burke got here and she said i'll see you in a little while on bible study oh, you better say to graham too He's gonna... well i know everybody i but i just happened to see her and she is a lady that i know very well because she lived here in sarasota for many years and i dated her daughter without giving her name and then from there when i went around the u.s traveled she gave me a house out on a uh, what do you call it um, in louisiana bayou thank you out on a bayou where i stayed and uh yeah she had her own house down the road but she owned this little house which was a beautiful library and so she was kind to me so when i saw that she'd be with us today okay here we go heavenly father thank you so much for your wonderful word thank you for what it proclaims Help us to not have a legalistic attitude. 
adding to your word, telling people things they shouldn't do when in fact it's freedom that they can do it. And also help us to never take the other view as well by taking away from the word of God and allowing things to be done which should not be done. Help us to just toe the line, to be obedient to your word, to be friendly in things which are, are debatable, but to be firm in the things which are not. Just as the Lord did when he was here, he was very strict in those things which people were not to do. And then he was kind to the people that did things that knew they were wrong, but just didn't know how to get out of the bondage they were in. Lord, help us to have that same attitude that Christ had and to be like him and to emulate him in all of our ways. To your glory, we pray this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me turn this off here. Or turn it back first. That's your break. <laughs>